Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hello, friends and neighbors, and welcome to a special edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know, as we watch the hearings of the January 6th committee last couple of weeks, one question keeps coming up. Did Donald Trump believe he had actually won the election of 2020? I mean, how could it be that after being told repeatedly that no substantial fraud had occurred, he still maintained that he won? I mean, is the man just crazy? Well, it just so happens that we looked into this very same question on the Bill Press Pod back in the summer of 2020, you might remember, with our series called The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, based on the best-selling book of the same name. When we looked over the interviews with the eight psychiatrists and psychologists who were also co-authors of the book, we found these two very chilling predictions of Trump's behavior. Here's one from Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. Henry Friedman. The paranoid person cannot be moved away from his view of who the enemy is. This is particularly true when it comes to the next election, where his view that he is being in danger justifies for him doing whatever he does to skew the election or throw it out in his favor. Here's another one from psychiatrist Dr. Prudence Gorgashen. I worry about this every day. What's going to happen if, well, what's going to happen if he wins? That's one concern. But what's going to happen if he loses? I think it will be the biggest test of our constitution and our democracy that we will ever face, because I don't think he has the mental capacity from what I can observe to absorb the fact that he lost and give, you know, yield power to the next president. I can't see how that's going to happen easily. Boy, they really had the orange guy's number, didn't they? But we aren't the only ones concerned about Trump's mental state. Do you know that in the January 6th committee's document request to the National Archives, they made this specific request, quote, all documents and communications related to the mental stability of Donald Trump or his fitness for office, unquote. So with the question on the minds of voters this fall, and hopefully on the minds of prosecutors at the Department of Justice, whether or not Trump actually believes his own bullshit, to quote former Attorney General Bill Barr, and with a very real prospect that Donald Trump will run again and conceivably win again, God forbid, we thought it worthwhile to bring you some highlights from our series, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. You can't say we weren't warned. Let's begin with Dr. Robert J. Lifton, At the age of 96, he's one of the most prominent psychiatrists in America. He's also one of the originators of the field of psychohistory, 
which is the study of psychological motivations for war, terrorism, and genocide. My own work on extremism, on efforts at reality control, or what I call the ownership of reality, this work had direct bearing on Trump. I emphasized what I call malignant normality. That is a normality that's imposed upon a group, as in Nazi Germany, that can be devastating and murderous and is presented as normal. I'm not saying that Trumpers' followers are Nazis, but they create their own malignant normality. Now, the danger of such malignant normality, of course, is that it pervades society to such an extent that we come to accept it as the new normal. That's the warning expressed by Dr. Leonard Glass, psychiatrist from the faculty of the Harvard Medical School. It is a malignant pseudo-normality, and some segments of our population are so hungry for a champion, someone who will authentically know everything and do everything, be the only one. It's so seductive, and it reminds you of other tyrannical leaders who succeeded in having mass appeal. And there's a kind of suspension of critical thinking on the part of the population who gets sort of swept up in an allegiance. It's as though you're following a baseball team or the Dallas Cowboys, and you don't care if your player plays by the rules or not. He's your player. That's what matters. And this added comment by Dr. Bandy Lee, editor of The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump, and psychiatrist on the faculty of the Yale Medical School. What is most important to point out, perhaps, is the difference between normality and abnormality. Because the abnormal, when it takes over, just like a pandemic, it can engulf our normal affairs. It can uh, absorb and subsume institutions and entire segments of the population. To believe that mental symptoms are not contagious is, in fact, a fantasy when they do not even require physical exposure to become contagious. And pathological symptoms are, are far more contagious. And so uh, there's often even an overturning of reality where the normal becomes abnormal, what's good becomes bad, and what used to be unacceptable is, is now what we, we all accept. It's important to note that these psychiatrists are not diagnosing Donald Trump nor pretending to. They are instead describing his behavior and warning us that his behavior is dangerous. Well, let's look at some of their observations about the mental stability of Donald Trump, starting with his focus on himself above all others. You may have heard that described as narcissism, but renowned Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Robert J. Lifton says it's actually a lot worse than that. Trump's approach to reality is what I call solipsistic. That's a little different from narcissistic. He's got plenty of that, of course. But solipsistic simply means self-contained. His only reality is the reality of the self, what it experiences and what it needs. I can say one more thing about reality. It's a term that's tossed about quite a bit. There are two kinds of reality. It's been studied over the ages, and it's hard to define. One is the more general 
reality that can be large visions and principles, such as the belief that democracy is the best or not the best form of government, or that God exists or does not. But the other is an immediate factual reality. I'm talking to you in a podcast today at this moment. That's an immediate factual reality. And when the president of a powerful country like the United States lives in a denial and rejection of factual reality, that country is in trouble. And in order to reclaim reality, one must expose that solipsistic reality for what it is and its dangers. So Trump's psychological deficits prevent him from seeing anything in the world beyond himself. If that's not enough to scare the hell out of you, wait, there's more. Trump's psychological deficits also make him a bully, Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Henry Friedman. He's such a bully that he doesn't even attempt to hide it. Uh, and he wants to bully people to be in a position of inferiority to him. And I, I think it's got to do with maintaining the fact that he's the best. He's the most important uh, person in the room, and he, he counts. Psychologist Stephen Solds explains the origin of that bully behavior on the part of Donald Trump. Bullies tend to be insecure. Using bullying is a way of dealing with that. It's changing it into its, into its opposite. This is an incredibly insecure person, I think. Dr. Souls is a clinical psychologist and director of the Social Justice and Human Rights Program at the Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. He says that Trump gets something else out of being a bully. It's also a, a merger of that with, I think, with sadism. He gets pleasure in cruelty. He just exhibits in a way that most people in the public, I know enough not to do, that the, the pleasure that he gets in making people suffer, his mocking of, of reporters, the tweets are also part of the way of doing that. So now we have at least one psychologist describe Trump as a sadist. But here's another term you don't often hear associated with Donald Trump, paranoid. Harvard psychiatrist Henry Friedman explains. People have trouble understanding how to define what we call paranoia. People are more used to it in the delusional form of somebody thinks they're being followed by the FBI. But it has to do with seeing others as exaggeratedly hostile and dangerous to them. So when you look at something like his relationship to the press, or those unfortunate press conferences during the uh, COVID conferences, and he would attack them mercilessly as if they were doing something rude or to him. He'd say, you're so rude. And, you know, he was the one being rude. You could see it, and, but you could also see the projection that they were really seen by him as dangerously attacking him, even when they were asking questions that were softball and weren't even so difficult at all. Tell me how you would comfort the people who have lost people in this pandemic. Paranoid mind sees danger all over the place and also needs to erect an enemy. In this case, with Trump, it's illegal immigrants, it's Mexicans, it's women, it's lots of groups that he can project his hatred onto. And the fact is, it's so evident, is that he's the hater. He's a man who's 
filled with hatreds and vitriolic denunciation of everyone in special names. But he's always seeing it as coming at him from groups that really don't bear him any hostility. The paranoid person cannot be moved away from his view of who the enemy is. This is particularly true when it comes to the next election, where his view that he is being in danger justifies for him doing whatever he does to skew the election or throw it out in his favor. And armed with Alan Dershowitz's argument, whatever the president does, if he thinks it's in the interest of the country, is is constitutional. You can just see what kind of confluence of actions we have to anticipate. As a person who can uh, use names to annihilate people, you know, Sleepy Joe, uh, etc. He obviously greatly fears anybody annihilating him, and he sees it in everything. And therefore, you know, when Nancy Pelosi says, "I pray for him." Uh, he says, oh, yeah, sure she does. If she prays for anything, it's for me to be dead. And, you know, he is extremely sensitive because challenges to his power are so disconcerting to him, disorganizing, you might say. But I think he always manages to come back and negate it in the same way that any information that he doesn't believe in. In my chapter, I wrote about paranoid grandiosity, the combination of the two, because he is a powerful figure, but he has to constantly emphasize how great he is. And a grandiose paranoid character will continue to be grandiose, paranoid, and a character disorder, and will wreak havoc. Boy, and wreak havoc he did. And the threat Donald Trump poses to our democracy is dangerous and ongoing. Let's dig a little deeper into the psyche of the man dominating politics in America today. You've probably heard the phrase, slave to your emotions. And you and I have probably been there ourselves, to be honest, from time to time. But we're not the once and possible future president of the United States. We are not a danger to the world. Donald Trump is. And he is a slave to his emotions. One of the most powerful emotions we all have is shame. Dr. James Gilligan was on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and for 13 years, director of the Harvard Institute of Law and Psychiatry. Dr. Gilligan speaks to the centrality of shame in Donald Trump's emotional makeup. The thing that alarms me about him is I've spent 50 years working with the most dangerous people our society produces. Murderers, multiple murderers, serial murderers, serial rapists, you name it. What I've discovered is in all of them, they are enormously hypersensitive to feelings of shame and humiliation. When I ask them why they killed somebody, they say, because he disrespected me or he laughed at me and so forth. Trump would be a textbook example what I call a shame-driven personality. I, I can put him in a textbook. In his speech to the governors, he mentioned that they were going to look like a bunch of jerks unless they stopped being too careful with the people protesting. He said, you're making yourself look like fools. Minnesota had become a laughingstock all over the world. What he's articulating there are his concerns. He, he's concerned that he is going to be a laughingstock or treated as a fool or turned into a fool or would be treated like a jerk. Because he is hypersensitive to those themes, he hands them off to other people 
The way that people who feel inferior or inadequate deal with that, in my experience, is by trying to put it onto other people. Trump specializes in thinking up insulting nicknames to ridicule anybody who criticizes him. This is his way of making sure they won't ridicule him. He's sometimes misunderstood as being shameless. In fact, there has never been a more shame-dominated president in our history. But the reason he's seen as shameless is because he is not ashamed of things that anybody else might feel guilty about. He's proud of them, just like the criminals I've worked with in prison. My staff and I used to say, you never meet a guilty man in prison, meaning not that they denied they'd committed the act they were committed for, but that they had no capacity for feelings of guilt about having grievously harmed somebody else. The same is true of Trump. He doesn't feel ashamed of what he does to other people. He is proud of it. But that's precisely his pathology. He has all the symptoms of psychopathy or sociopathy, or what we call antisocial personality disorder. This pattern of repeating lies, there's a name for that in psychiatry. It's called psychopathic liar. People who just lie constantly, not that they even always have to. They just get pleasure from feeling that they can, either that they can deceive other people, which means they can fool other people, which means they turn other people into fools so that they themselves won't be seen as a fool, which is their fear. He just does this thousands of times. We've never had a president like that. Harper West, joining us now, is a psychotherapist and one of the contributors to the book, The Dangerous Case of Donald Trump. Because he has no conscience, people who have that antisocial type of personality, um, they don't experience guilt and shame. They don't have any remorse. So they're going to say and do whatever pleases him in that moment to get people to do whatever he wants or to get approval. Again, very short-sighted and self-centered. Shame is a primal emotion. It's deeply tied to our, our fears of inadequacy and, and fears of being socially rejected. And so it, it's very, very powerful. Many people call shame the master emotion. It's part of a group of self-conscious emotions that help us behave in pro-social ways. Um, but shame and fear are very closely affiliated. And unfortunately, in people like Trump, he has a lot of inadequacies, a lot of fears of being um, embarrassed and humiliated. And he has adopted a lot of very unhealthy behaviors and responses to this. We call it poor shame tolerance. And this is what hijacks his brain. He feels inadequate, and then he engages in all kinds of unhealthy coping mechanisms, so to speak, um, largely driven by fear and anger. And then he acts out, and that's why he can't do the right thing, because he's being taken over by this very primal emotion of of shame and fear, and he cannot control himself. Dr. Gilligan has studied a lot of criminals, but he sees something else in Donald Trump, not just shame, but strong dictatorial tendencies. We see that every day. Dr. Gilligan explains how it's a driver for Donald Trump's actions. He could walk out of the prisons that I've worked with people in. And, but as I said, the only difference between him and them is because he's got a lot of wealth and power, he doesn't need to do the violence himself. He gets his followers to do it for him, just like the worst dictators of the past have done. Trump has repeatedly urged his followers to commit lethal violence. This started even before he was elected when he reminded his followers that they could always assassinate Hillary Clinton if she got elected president and he didn't. 
And he said that at the very least, throw her in prison, but they could kill her. He led crowds in chance of lock her up. But he also said if she gets to pick her judges, nothing you can do, folks. Although the Second Amendment people, maybe there is, I don't know. He said that in a political rally. Well, you know what the Second Amendment people are, people with guns. And you know what people do with guns? Uh, if, if they're going to use them, they shoot people with them. So he was really telling his followers they could they could assassinate his political rival. This is a bid to become the first dictator in American history. More on Trump the dictator from Harvard psychiatrist Dr. Henry Friedman. In watching him campaign and watching the election, I was aware of certain character traits and certain styles that were very much those of totalitarian leaders, including the identification of an enemy, the construction of a pseudo-disaster. Remember, he said it was American carnage, and I thought, oh, he's going to say it's American carnage. There isn't any carnage, but he will cure it. He will do what dictators do. He will announce that he has cured the terrible state that he took over. I say about President Trump that he's somebody you can depend upon to always do the worst thing to always respond in the way that's totally oppositional to what a more empathic, comprehending person would say, but is always exactly like a person who had a dictator-type personality would, would do. And we've seen it so many times in history, and I, I feel like it's history repeating itself. When I first wrote this, I wrote about Hitler and Stalin and the way in which Trump's identification of an enemy of the Mexicans and illegal immigrants was like Hitler's identification of the Jews. People always get shocked if you say Hitler. But the more this has gone on, the more I see the parallels and the more I see underlying fundamental characteristics that can be shifted from one place to the other, just taking into account the differences in the United States from Weimar Germany. The word difference is we've had a strong society and government, and he's managed to fragment it, but he doesn't have the power that Hitler had to do the same thing. Of course, you can't become a dictator all by yourself. You need help, as we hear from Dr. Judith Herman on the faculty of the Harvard Medical School and one of the most renowned psychiatrists in the country. As he repeatedly tested the limits of what he could get away with and saw that, in fact, he was going to be enabled by his Republican Party, that he would become bolder in his demands to be the all-powerful leader that he wished to be. Trump's admiration for dictators and desire to be like them, not as simply a kind of narcissistic fantasy, which would be merely pathetic, if not dangerous, if it were not so serious. These are bids to see whether he can, in fact, become the first autocratic dictator in our country. And he has already made many bids of this sort. And then if he gets pushed back, he retreats and says he doesn't mean it and that he was just kidding. And anyway, that happened yesterday, so that didn't really happen. And what he said today is what's real. But this is how countries slide from some kind of representative democracy into dictatorship. So some of it is wanting to 
appear like a strong man. You know, his idol, Mr. Putin, wrestles with tigers and that sort of thing. How could he bow down to a virus, something that nobody can even see? Someone with such clear authoritarian pretensions and such grandiosity saying things like, only I can fix America. And such impulsivity and sociopathy and paranoia. All of those features made me think that this was a dangerous would-be demagogue. Dr. Friedman of Harvard adds this. Remember the things that he does, tweeting all the time, being in the public image, being on TV. These are what dictators do. Remember, in all the dictators, there's a picture of them in every household. We have got that with him. He's in every household, every minute, every day, every headline. Of course, Donald Trump has not yet succeeded in becoming a dictator, though we now know he tried very hard and will no doubt try again if he gets a chance to be commander-in-chief. Speaking of the armed forces, the U.S. Army has an actual field training manual on leader development. Psychiatrist Prudence Gorgeson is past president of the American Psychoanalytic Association. She adapted that field manual on leader development from the Army to Donald Trump and measured him against the five standards set for any officer that's any officer in the U.S. Army. Dr. Gorgeson runs them down. Well, these are in no particular order of priority. They're all essential. So one is trust, the ability to trust other people and to inspire trust in others. Second is self-control or discipline. The Army calls it discipline. And that's the capacity to have a feeling or thought and, and then think before you act on it. A third is empathy, the capacity to understand, to, to grasp what other people are feeling or thinking as they are feeling it, to stand in other people's shoes, not as you would react in their shoes, but as they are. And then there is self-awareness. And that's the ability to monitor yourself. If you've made a mistake, you can recognize it. You can see the processes in your mind and in your actions that led to the mistake. If you react emotionally, you can monitor that and try to understand why and correct yourself. Learn. Basically, self-awareness is necessary to learn. If you can't learn, you can't do anything other than what you've always done. And finally, is very important, is critical thinking, the ability and judgment. The ability, and that's a very complex one, but it's basically the ability to, to bring in information, to know what information you need, to compare it to other sets of information, other experiences, organize it, sift through it, and make a decision based on a, a rational thought process. I asked Dr. Gorgashan how Trump measured up to those standards. He flunks, he fails all five, which is really amazing. I have a friend, a professor of political science, Richard Rupp, and he's a presidential scholar of sorts, especially a Nixonian scholar. We went through presidents Nixon, Johnson, Reagan, and even Nixon had two of those traits. Nobody else came close to not having any. So what, what I've been preoccupied is what does it mean if you buy my little measure, if you have no traits that you need, no capacities that are necessary to be a, a competent leader, what does that mean? And now we've seen what it means. We've seen manifestations of what happens when that's true. 
One of the traits in my five-point assessment is empathy, which I was very surprised the Army mentions in their leadership manual. They stress the need for empathy for many reasons. You can't have a cohesive functioning team without empathy. You can't communicate without empathy because you don't know if your message is being heard or how it's being heard. You can't integrate diverse perspectives. The fundamental thing about the preening while people are dying is there are no people dying. I think, for Trump. There are no other people. People don't exist outside of those who are serving him, praising him, keeping him going. He is, uh, as, as far as I can tell, unable to keep the existence, the reality of other people in his mind or even let it enter his mind. And this is such a profound lack. We can hardly understand it. We can hardly believe it. One, one of the challenges I had when I was developing my five-point model was I wanted to add reality testing, which is a psychological concept. And it's basically the, uh, the ability to tell that something that you're feeling or your thought has some connection to reality or doesn't, or it's coming from some emotional place in you. And he has very little. When I was interviewed during the campaign, um, I was asked about uh, Trump's lying. And I remember being very puzzled about how to talk about it because I don't know if he's lying because I think often he starts out lying or makes up something that he wants to be true and then he believes it and then you can't call it lying because lying is a deliberate falsehood. So I wanted to include reality testing in my model but it's not in the army leadership manual and I thought and I wanted to stick to that. And I thought, why isn't it in there? Because the army is going to assume you're going to tell the truth. You're going to have a relationship with reality. They don't need to mention that. And the fact that we're at the point where we're even discussing this seems incredibly ominous to me. Always ha- has been. To sum up to this point, Donald Trump is driven by shame, is a wannabe dictator, and failed on all five qualities that the army requires of any officer. That would make any intelligent human being kind of feel badly about themselves, no? So does Donald Trump have low self-esteem? Yes, say our psychiatrists and psychologists. And according to Stanford University professor emeritus Dr. Philip Zimbardo, that low self-esteem of Donald Trump, that inadequacy, dictates a great deal of his behavior. He's mentally inadequate to perform the job that he has been elected for, and that over time, his behavior, his mannerisms are showing more and more signs of his unraveling, of his awareness at some level that he is inadequate for this incredibly difficult, challenging job. But he can't admit that to himself or to anyone else. So a lot of what you see is covering up is covering up inadequacies, but sometimes the cover-up makes the situation worse and worse. Here again is former Harvard psychiatrist, Dr. James Gilligan. This need to present himself as omnipotent and the greatest person who's ever lived and so forth is precisely his defense against actually feeling inferior like he's a nobody. And the way to say I'm a nobody is to say I'm everything. It's so obvious. It's amazing to me that he isn't aware of that himself. Dr. Judith Herman, again of the Harvard Medical School, adds this comment. It's also, I think, at the root of his hatred of what he calls the elites and the deep state. 
He wasn't Ivy League material. He made his bone spurs the excuse for not serving in Vietnam. He went and hid in a bunker in the White House. He knows somewhere deep down that he is a coward, that he is ignorant, that he is a con man. And his longing to be admired and accepted as something he is not is part of the the shame and part of the rage that goes with deep humiliation. Now, you might wonder, does Donald Trump even know he's inadequate? Clinical psychologist Dr. Stephen Saltz says, you bet he does. And at some level, he knows it. The grandiosity is defensive. He knows that people don't think much of him. He constantly needs the adulation because he's constantly in this world where he isn't up to the the tasks of time, and he's afraid that people will notice it. In fact, I think he knows that people notice it, and so he constantly needs more adulation. He's dying to be in front of the big crowds at the rallies again, because there, there's this brief interaction where he can only be the hero, the great leader, and he doesn't have any of the consequences, doesn't have any of the people around him rolling their eyes and basically saying, you know, you really can't do that, sir. To me, it suggests that he is incredibly insecure, that this is defensive. It goes to the extent where it gets ludicrous. The crowds at the inauguration, anyone who looked at the pictures knew that that wasn't true. So, but it's partially, it's combined in him with his sadism. Basically, it's not just that he's got the biggest crowds, but he's the fact that he can force you to say that when you know it's not true. So you humiliate Sean Spicer, the press person at the White House at the time who had to give press conferences talking about these enormous crowds that he perfectly well knew didn't exist. And I think it's the domination that goes along with the lying. It's the fact that I can get away with it. Psychotherapist Harper West reveals how Trump's feelings of inadequacy drive his aberrant behavior. He reacts so much to fears of inadequacy that he's just doing anything he can do to scramble around in that present moment to get away from this feeling of shame. And if that means he has to lie, if that means he has to attack other people personally, if that means he has to just spew out a word salad of incoherent comments and phrases, he'll do it just to get away from the feeling of of inadequacy. A lot of people say that Donald Trump's this way because he's just a toddler with an underdeveloped or undeveloped adult emotional structure. Yeah, we hear that toddler theory a lot. Two of our experts, psychiatrist Dr. Prudence Gorgashan and psychiatrist Henry Friedman, address that Trump is a child question. I think it's one of the great errors in the otherwise excellent journalistic attempt to capture him kind of trying to say he's like a child. He is not like a child. He is like a dangerous adult. A dangerous adult is not a child. A dangerous adult is a dangerous adult. And it is very important that there's nothing infantile about him. There's nothing that resembles a tantrum. This is the anger of someone who can say, kill him. Believe me, if he had his way, there'd be a number of people who would disappear from the media. So I I don't think that this has got to do with the the tantrums of children, uh, because he is very much—he's a—he's a a overreactive, wild adult. 
But I don't think we say that comes from uh, being a child. Well, I understand why people talk about him in a, as a child, why they use that trope to try to understand what's going on with him, because children have to face certain challenges like learning to regulate their emotions. They're, they have to develop impulse control. They have to develop empathy or if hopefully. They have to learn to think critically. Uh, so he didn't learn all those things. There's a lot of arrested development on all those fronts. Uh, and um, and yet, as, as someone said, it's an insult to children to call him child. We analysts make the mistake of assuming that there isn't choice that people make. You say he hasn't developed uh, certain skills. I think he chose at many crucial points not to have them, not to pay attention to them. I don't see him as a prisoner of his own character, like with somebody who has a psychotic illness. I think there's a lot of choice in what he's become, and I think he's very proud of it. I guess I would say I don't think either of us really knows what he's chosen, what he's been fated to become. We can we can speculate about it. I can feel it. What we know is how he behaves and what his predilections are and what the implications of those predilections and practices. So a little bit of disagreement on that question. But what's clear is that whatever is causing Trump's behavior, these psychiatrists are worried about it. You know what? And we should be too. Now, we're going to take a quick break now. And when we come back, we'll try to answer the question that stumps me and maybe stumps you too. Why can't Trump help himself by moving on from his 2020 defeat? It's disastrous for the country and bad politics for Trump. That's a mystery we'll try to solve when we come back from our break. Oh, boy. Deal enough with Donald Trump, you know. Um, we need somebody we can believe in. <laughs> it sure ain't Donald Trump. I'll tell you who I believe in. He's my new hero, and that's Jose Andres. I mean, this guy is a miracle worker. Remember when uh, Hurricane Rita hit uh, Puerto Rico? Donald Trump couldn't even find the freaking island. Now, Jose Andres was down there on day one handing out a million hot meals. And now, of course, he's on the front line in Ukraine and Poland helping the refugees from the war in Ukraine. I mean, nobody does better work today, I think, in the world than Jose Andres and his World Central Kitchen. Uh, I got to say, I sent them whatever I could just to help them out, and I hope you will too. I encourage you, give Jose Andres and the World Central Kitchen all the support you can. Go to their website, wck.org, wck.org, uh, and help this great American great individual, Jose Andres, do his great work anywhere in the world where people need help. He's there with our help. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low and high profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. 
Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. now to address the important question and relevant question of why Trump can't even help himself. We first ask psychotherapist Harper West. It's certainly fascinating, Bill, to consider why Trump is so self-defeating, because he clearly is. There's numerous examples that we've seen in the last few years. But I guess what I'd really like to clearly state is that this is what makes him very dangerous and unfit to be president, because he will continue to behave in his own emotional self-interest and not in any rational, long-term way for the good of, of the country or the citizens or even of the world. But having said that, of course, we can examine why he just can't seem to do the right thing. Um, as a psychologist, you know, we tend to look at when people behave in irrational and self-defeating ways, we can assume it's because their rational brain is being hijacked by their emotional brain, to speak, you know, very simplistically. And when we look at certainly narcissistic or sociopathic personalities, they often act against their own self-interest because they're being driven by very strong emotions and not by logic or rationality. And this certainly um, appears to be true for Donald Trump. Um, and again, this is what makes him very dangerous and unfit to lead because his rational brain is going to be hijacked and taken over um, by his emotional brain. More on that point, psychiatrist Dr. Henry Friedman comments on how Trump's narcissism traps him. All of us at our worst narcissistic moment really think that whatever we think is true, but we usually backpedal and we usually talk to somebody else who will say to us, you're off on that one. And we can use consensual validation. He does not because he has such intense faith in his own gut, as he puts it, in what he feels is right. And I think he actually believes, even though all the polls seem to be indicating something else, that he's actually going to win the next election because he cannot get it that people really don't agree with him in what he aims for. What is consensual validation? Well, that's how we test our own ideas against other people and their ideas. Psychiatrist Dr. Prudence Gorgashan says Trump does get a kind of consensual validation, but from dangerous people and dangerous ideas. There's another aspect to this consensual validation issue, which I think is very critical for us to think about, and that is conspiracy thinking. Because when you watch him, he, he does have a kind of consensual validation, but his source 
is conspiracy theorists. So uh, you watch him way back in the campaign when he talked about the Muslims dancing on the shores of Jersey City or wherever it was. And he was challenged by a, by a journalist uh, who said, the police said it didn't happen. The news, you know, this person said it didn't happen. And this said it didn't happen. He heard it. People said. And that's the conspiracy theory background noise that he's responding to. And that's how he's getting validated. And that's really dangerous. Summing up again, uh, as a nation and as a world, we were at the mercy of a man who cannot make rational decisions and is paralyzed by his own fragile emotional state. We were at the mercy of that man for four years. So where does that leave us now and in the future? It leaves us in a great deal of danger, says psychiatrist Dr. Prudence Gorgashan. I see him as uh, intensely impulsive and vulnerable to both his internal fluctuating whims and feelings and also to the influence of others, especially those who praise him. I don't think the issue of mental illness is relevant. And in fact, I think it's not helpful to talk about uh, diagnoses or whether he has a mental illness because it deflects from, it distracts us from what he's doing, what he's capable of doing, and what we need to be concerned about, whether it's uh, his potential as a dictator, his dangerousness, his absolute incompetence. Those are the things we need to think about, talk about, worry about. Mental illness, Abraham Lincoln had a mental illness and he was one of our best presidents. For psychiatrist James Gilligan, the danger is not only what Trump himself does, but also what he can get his true believers to do. Political leaders generally do not kill people themselves. He incites his followers to violence, and then they commit violence. He himself may not kill anybody. He's dangerous because of the position he holds as president, and he is somebody who incites other people to commit violence for him the way most uh, political leaders do. And he has done that repeatedly. Okay, let's finish where we started with those prescient predictions of the big lie and the coup from two of our experts. First, again, Dr. Henry Friedman. The chapter I wrote is called His View That He Is Being In Danger Justifies For Him Doing Whatever He Does To Skew The Election Or Throw It Out In His Favor. And armed with Alan Dershowitz's argument that whatever the president does, if he thinks it's in the interest of the country, is constitutional, you can just see what kind of confluence of actions we have to anticipate. Dr. Gorgashan. I worry about this every day. What's going to happen if, well, what's going to happen if he wins? That's one concern. But what's going to happen if he loses? I think it will be the biggest test of our constitution and our democracy that we will ever face because I don't think he has the mental capacity from what I can observe to absorb the fact that he lost and give you know, yield power to the next president. I can't see how that's going to happen easily. And remember, a failed coup is just a rehearsal for the next attempt, an attempt that Donald Trump and the Republican Party are prepping right now for 2024. Of course, we know Trump's not on the ballot in 2022, but Trumpism is. Yeah, America's going to have to decide in November 2022 which is more important? 
our anger at inflation or our desire to save our democracy. If Trump enablers take the House and the Senate, think about this, one whole branch of government will be run by the likes of Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and God forbid, maybe the worst, Jim Jordan. So inflation or democracy, that's our choice, and we're going to have to make that choice in the film. And with that word, that's it for this edition of the Bill Press Pod. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back again Friday, Friday with our Reporters Roundtable. Lots to talk about this week with two more January 6th Select Committee hearings. So stay safe, stay strong, take care of yourselves, and come on back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod.